I truly believe that one of the biggest ways we can honour our ancestors is to allow ourselves to heal. If we sit in our pain and our grief and we function from our pain and our grief, we're not allowing ourselves to heal. We're denying our lights to shine, we're denying our freedom, and that's what they would have wanted. They would have wanted us to be free. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Often described as a force to be reckoned with, Nova Reed is an inspirational speaker, writer, and diversity and anti-racism campaigner. Nova approaches her work from a unique position and uses her professional background in counseling skills, mental well-being, and understanding of human behavior to encourage meaningful change from the inside out. She has worked with over 200 progressive organizations and clients, including Change.org, Lufthansa, and Bloody Good Period, and has also recently launched an online anti-racism course. In 2019, Nova was shortlisted for an Inclusive Companies Award and nominated for a National Diversity Award. Nova is a passionate advocate for equality and helping people be the change they want to see in the world. She regularly appears on BBC News, Sky News and BBC Radio as an expert on race and diversity matters. In 2018, Nova was invited to attend the royal wedding of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex to provide expert media commentary. Nova is a popular keynote speaker and a regular mentor at the Southbank Centre's Women of the World Festival. In March 2019, Nova was invited to lead a panel at the UK's first She Summit. In the same month, she was honoured to be named one of the top 100 Black British women by the Black Magic Network as part of International Women's Day 2019. Later that year, Nova was invited by TEDx Frankfurt to give a talk on microaggressions. Nova is a regular writer for publications including Refinery29 UK and Restless Magazine and is also the founder of multi-award-winning wedding platform and London show New Bride, the leading inclusive platform dedicated to diversity in the mainstream wedding industry. Nova is a passionate advocate for equality and helping people be the change they want to see in the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and I'm here with this beautiful queen today, Queen Nova Reed. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Leila. What a pleasure. I'm so excited to, to be here with you. I'm very grateful that we got the chance to meet just very briefly in person a few months ago, caught each other. On the, was it the rooftop of the South Bank's South yes. Bank Center? Yeah. And it was a beautiful sunny day and it was such synchronicity because I thought I'm just I wanted to see you, but I thought it's just yeah. gonna be impossible. And there yeah. you were. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> so we were the, for context for everyone who's listening, we were at the Women of the World 
festival at the South Bank, South Bank Centre in London. Um, I was in the UK for my UK book tour. And Nova, now I knew we were going to be there at the same time. You were in the audience for my talk, right? Yes. Along yes. with, yeah. And I could hear like the hell yeses. <laughs> you were the, the, <laughs> the choir in the audience. It just made me feel so joyful in that, okay. in that conversation. And then I was hanging out with my sister's-in-law and caught you on the rooftop and that was amazing yeah, yeah it was yeah. wonderful it was yeah, the best was part really of my day in fact after that so it only I meant to come earlier that day and didn't organize myself so I arrived in time for your talk mm-hmm. and I was going to do other things afterwards but after our nourishing conversation on the rooftop I was like yep yeah, that's it cup full I'm, I'm going good home. yeah <laughs> it was awesome it was so awesome and it's so you know wild to think about it that that was just a few months ago and now the idea mm. of you know being anywhere near each other is just yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to the days when <laughs> we can be out in the sun in London and out on the street and seeing each other. Yeah. Yeah. All right, my love, let's get started. Good Ancestor podcast, our very first question for everybody. Who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned, familial or societal, who've influenced you on your journey? My goodness. Do you know, I'm still discovering this part of me. I traced my ancestry by a DNA test in... December and I got my results in January Wow! and there are so many components and parts of myself that I'm only just discovering and I went on a, a spiritual healing retreat in February so yeah this is a big question for me there's parts of myself that need integrating there are so many aspects of who I am that I'm still exploring and I'm still honoring yeah You know, Mm. in doing my research for our conversation, I think I was watching your TEDx speak, which was um, TEDx talk, which is amazing. And you talked about growing up in Hertfordshire and being one of the only, right? Mm. And I I so resonated with that because I grew up in Cardiff and Wales and was one of, was the only (laughs) going to Roman Catholic schools. So the only Muslim, (laughs) the only Muslim being sent to those schools and, uh, and one of the only black kids. And this idea of who am I? Everyone else Mm. has to know who they are. I'm not really sure. How did I get here? And why am I different? Is that something that you feel since your childhood, you've really grappled with finding your place and where are you now in that sense of self-definition? Yeah so I grappled with just at the younger when I was younger it's more about fitting in that mm-hmm. sense of belonging and when I came to accept my identity as a black woman as I would say as a black girl that was really painful for me it's very hard because I had received programming that told me I was less than because I was black right and so accepting that was was really painful for me that I've gone through therapy there was a lot of trauma and so there's been a piece about accepting who I am as a little black girl and a black woman and then there's been this piece of when I started to explore anti-racism and what that means and and starting to learn about colonial past and where I really came from yeah then it's like that journey's had to go on all over again. Who I thought I was, that's not the whole story. Or am I even that? I remember when I shared my... So my dad has always been somebody who 
has read the books, has been very much into anti-racism. He wouldn't call it that, but that's what he was into. And I remember as a young teenager saying to him, oh, come on, Dad, it's not about race. That was a long time. I would say all the stuff that I find eye-rolling now. And then I got to an age, and I was a teenager. I don't know how old I was, but it was more when I was starting to be independent. Mm. And I was noting these rejections. I was noticing this disproportionate treatment. And I was noticing the racism. in a way that I've been protected before by my parents. And I was like, wow, dad was right all along. So when I went on this journey to trace my ancestry and I shared the results with my parents and my mum and dad were in the room, dad was like, yep, that makes sense. (laughs) And my mum, and I love my mum, but she's not into this stuff at all. She's (laughs) just like, this is the way it is. This is the way white people are. Let's just get on with it and live a peaceful life. So when I told her that I was 56% Nigerian, she said it was a load of rubbish. And she said, where's the Jamaican? And I said, mommy, you've missed the whole point. We were never there to begin with. Yeah. We moved there. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so how do you think, so and thank you for sharing this really personal story. How do you think she was processing that? I just think it was just, I think it was too much for her. I yeah. Don't, she just, it just wasn't dropping cognitively. It's just not mm. her she doesn't have the understanding. And I think that's something that's really important that just because you're black or brown doesn't necessarily mean that you're anti-racist or you understand, you know, the enormity of what this means. Right. And she just couldn't understand it. And there, there was also, I vaguely remember that there was this anti-African, anti-Caribbean rhetoric that went on between the black community as well. Yeah. And so that was coming up as yeah. well. Yeah. There's a way in which I definitely saw it in the UK when I when I still lived there, and I've seen it when I've traveled around the US as well. And I think it, it exists also within you know European countries that were colonizing yeah. um, parts of Africa, where and, and other countries where it's like, but now you're here, so just be British. But now you're yeah. here, so just be American. You don't need yeah. to go digging into that stuff, and the extent to which you start saying, actually, yes, I'm British and I'm also these other things, you are, there's, there's almost like a, like you're betraying, yes. right? Like there's a sense of betrayal and now you, you're being treated as if you're othering yourself and saying, then you don't really belong here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so layered. I remember yeah. growing up because I, because I speak a certain way, mm-hmm. I would be told that I was a coconut and that I wasn't black enough. Right. And then there was all my struggles with my identity anyway. So this not feeling like I belonged anywhere. And it's like, I can't be, when I'm British, I'm told I'm not British. When I claim my Jamaican heritage, I'm told I'm not Jamaican enough. And then sort of fast forward further on down the line to exploring ancestry. It's like, well, oh, let's go back. Right. <laughs> let's just go back to basics because I'm more than one thing. But we yeah. often don't celebrate that. We try to put ourselves in these boxes. Right. And I'm so struck by the fact that for white people, it's, well, I'm white. And that's mm. the end of the conversation. Exactly. And there, you know, we, we talk a lot in this work, right, about the exchange that had to be made for people of where they were really from to exchange it for whiteness so that they could claim that white privilege. And there's a, I have seen, and I'm sure you have as well, as we talk to white people in our work about, you know, instead of culturally appropriating from our cultures, why not explore what is present in your own? Mm. And there's sort of a, but I don't know what's present 
in my own. I don't know what's there. And so I find it really ironic that there is that there is that on the one hand, but then for us, there's this projection of if you go and start exploring your own culture and claiming your own culture and dressing in your own culture, yeah. that you're now also saying that you're not one of us. Yeah. 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 It is so multi-layered in your own journey then. And especially like, I'm sure you have a lot of black women and women of color who look to mm. you, who come to come in your DMs and ask for advice, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, for them, as they are reclaiming their own identity, what are some nuggets of wisdom that you have for them? I think I, I said it earlier, is that we are more than one thing. Yeah. And that is that is a beautiful, that's a gift, that's a positive. And we can be all of these parts of ourselves. We don't need to hide different elements of ourselves because we think that they are unworthy, less than or whatever. It's claiming all of them and embracing all of them and discovering all these new parts of yourself that you didn't realize existed in whatever way that feels right and releasing any shame around not knowing. And releasing shame, any shame, shame around is, rejecting. Yeah, shame is a big one. Oh, huge. So many. <laughs> Shame is a big one. I think for me, I, you know, in coming, because you were saying about how you used to say the same things that now make you roll your eyes, right? <laughs> and my dad just sits there quietly going, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and we have to like forgive that part of ourselves. Yeah. That didn't know. Yeah, yeah. 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 So what I find really interesting about your story is your entry into kind of anti-racism work was through what I would say is a very unlikely avenue. <laughs> you know, because when I was first getting to know you and your and your work, I was like, oh, she's okay. She's an anti-racism educator, but she's also, she runs this wedding consultancy business. Like, <laughs> oh, that, those must be two separate things that she just has two different interests in. But in digging deeper into your work, finding out actually it was the wedding world that brought you into anti-racism work. Yes. Um, tell us about that. I think it was bubbling beneath the surface before because Mm. I started my professional journey as a professional actress and singer and uh, and dance for a little bit. And I lost confidence and ended up retraining, Mm. had an injury as well. And I was temping. I was working in mental health as a temp and they just loved the way that I was with people. And so they retrained me to work in mental health, Mm. disability advocacy. So the foundation really started then with sort of advocating for the underdog. In that time, I got engaged to be married. Mm. So as part of the process of starting my journey working in mental health, you have to do a lot of inner work. And so that inner work was bringing all of the stuff about my race to the surface that I thought I dealt with. I didn't, I was happy, thought Mm. I was happy with who I was and comfortable in my skin. So in therapy and supervision, this stuff was coming up. It's like, "Mm, I don't know why this is, I thought I dealt with this. Then I got engaged. So because this stuff was on the surface, I got engaged, brought all these magazines and there were just no black people anywhere. Right. (laughs) And I was like, what is this? And I'm like, why have we not moved on from, at the time, Disney characters and, you know, this lack of representation, something that's so universal, celebrating love. And so I was at the point where I was much more confident in who I was. And I was like, I'm not tolerating this anymore. So I just started blogging Mm. and ranting about it. And that's what was the catalyst to me starting in that space to drive forth more representation and to challenge publishers 
who was saying that they would never put black women on the front cover of a magazine because black women won't sell and white women won't buy a magazine with a black woman on the cover. And right. then saying this to me. And so you would be emailing, you would be emailing them to ask how yes. come, right? So I, I, I wrote letters at first and got fobbed off. And then I thought, let me just create my own platform, which is called New Bride. Yeah. And then that sort of evolved. It evolved into a website, a directory, a wedding show. And so as I grew more successful in that space and also I wasn't going away, suddenly these publishers were contacting me um, and asking me about what they can do to improve diversity within most, their publication or business. And was that most likely because they'd been called out? Or Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because there's nothing that I see that, you know, motivates the status quo, dominant culture to change unless very tough pressure <laughs> has been applied. <laughs> yes. Sadly, it's not, it doesn't often come from within as a, you know, something no. to change here. Yeah. And the, hugely, the wedding industry is hugely institutionally racist. I'm not going to make any, like most industries I haven't, haven't engaged And I think it was an article I wrote for Huffington Post that got their attention because I named them. And at that point, I said in their 60-year history, they've never had a black woman or a woman of colour on the front cover of their magazine. There's the evidence. Wow. It's really striking me because, you know, on this podcast, I get to speak to some of the most incredible people in the world. And each one of them works in a different field. And exactly what you've said, I've heard from people in the wellness space, people in, you know, in the fashion space, like all, all of those things, again, that this space is institutionally has always been extremely white. White supremacy is the foundation upon which this industry is built. Mm -hmm. And we're in the year 2020 and, you know, still the representation has been this much. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I mean, for the listeners, people of all races, oftentimes it's like, oh, there's going to be an area of life in which white supremacy is not present. The wedding industry, there's no white supremacy there, right? That has nothing to do, that has nothing to do with racists, right? Mm -hmm. And then you dig up and like you said, just laying the facts out and saying there has never been a black person, a woman of color on the cover and, I, and what really strikes me about that, when I was doing the research about your work and watching a video that you did, I can't remember where it was you were being interviewed, but it reminded me about what I've said about what I notice when I watch movies. And so when I watch, I love going to the cinema. I love movies, <laughs> but I always watch it with two eyes. Like I'm watching for the story and the enjoyment of just surrendering to the moment, but I'm also watching mm-hmm. for, hmm, how is racism showing up here? How is white supremacy showing up here? And something that I notice is that in movies where there is a love interest, the love interests are usually white. Yes. If they're not white, if we're going for a diversity thing here, it has to be an interracial couple. Yes. Oftentimes, the person who is a person of color is very light skinned. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the way to make it acceptable, in air quotes, to everybody, in air quotes, to dominant culture. You cannot see, you will not see a love interest with both partners being black people unless it's considered a black movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That means it's now been, it's, it's usually been made by black people. It's an all black cast. (laughs) That's the only time that you see that. So this idea, so I'm looking at, like you said, with the wedding magazines, you're seeing brides and and grooms 
who are or brides and brides or and grooms and grooms who are all white. Yes. And that's expected to apply to everybody. So you, Nova, were supposed to be able to find yourself mm-hmm. within whiteness. But if you were on the cover, right, a white woman cannot find herself in your blackness. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That was the thing. It was like, well, if you're black or brown, use your imagination. And you know, we, 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 for the most part, we had to. And I remember when I started to speak up on this, to friends and family and other peers and say, look, there's no magazine. I've gone through three magazines that have 300 pages and there's not even a brown skin. There's not even a light skinned person. Right, there. right. right. It's not even anything. Yeah. And so the, the immediate response was, well, isn't there a black magazine? Right. And my response to that was, this is what? a way. Why right. do I need to segregate? Right, right. And really that's saying, that's really saying then, is this on, is this magazine then only for white people? Yeah, of course. Yeah, right. <laughs> They're reinforcing what I'm right. challenging. Right. If I want to go and access things about my culture, then I know about my culture. It's right. in my family. I can, you know, I can ask for traditions and inspiration from my family. They're my right. source. Right. But if I want everyday universal tips on hair, makeup, wedding right. dresses, what things look like on my skin tone, then I'm going to go to those magazines and they just, they just did not exist for us. Yeah. And what really strikes me is so, is so many people, I mean, for you, it was like, and like you said, you were at a point in your life in which those questions were coming up for you anyway. Yeah. So you were noticing it. But yeah. for the most part, we're flicking through. We don't even notice. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you have white privilege, you don't notice. Yeah. 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 And so I'm sure many people are thinking, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. They Why? You know, yeah, I'm sure. And so, you know, jump from there, you've, you're starting New Bride, which is this beautiful business. Tell us about it and tell us about the wedding show that you did last year so it started just as a blog when blogging was in (laughs) and we don't um, do that anymore we don't don't, anymore we're we're lazy we just want (laughs) social media quick fixes and I really everything about new vibe was different like my logo was red everything in the wedding industry was pastel and pink and I had this big bold red and gold logo and I uh it was Primarily, it started as me documenting my own planning. And then when I saw that my story was resonating with others and then brands started to contact me and ask me if they could sponsor. And I'm like, I have no idea what's happening. I don't know what, I don't know what this is. And so right. I thought, let me get married. And if I still have the same energy behind it post-wedding, right. let me see what I can do to monetize it and turn it into a professional space. Mm. And so that process started in 2014. And then I went full-time in the business in 2016. And that was when I wanted more from it where I was seeing the value in in-person experiences. And I was just, I did regular, because um, what happened in that space was my blog was very small in terms of numbers com- in com- compared to my white peers yeah. who had, some of them had 200 plus thousand, some half a million, uh, some even uh, over a million. And mm. I had, I think at that time on average, about 16,000 followers. So mm. much smaller. Mm. And so when advertisers, who weren't really engaged in this work but wanted to tick a box wanted to get in touch and I and they asked me for my fee and I would tell them they'd be like but 
your blog is so much smaller and so they saw the numbers is the value mm. but I was like but it might be smaller but they are engaged I know where they shop I know where they read I know what they like yeah. and they are loyal they will give word of mouth recommendations because they're not being served anywhere else so that's right to speak to them about the value is niche yeah. was interesting and so in doing these annual surveys, what was coming up with that was that wedding shows were really, really inadequate, that they didn't meet needs, that people were receiving racism, you know, automatic assumptions about whether they could or couldn't afford a service, oh, mm-hmm. being ignored. Yeah. Um, oh, my God, so much stuff. And so I thought, there's a niche here. I'm going to be mad and do a wedding show. <laughs> The trouble with the industry. And had you had you done anything like that before? I produced theatre shows before. Okay. And to me, it was easier than that. It was easier than producing okay. a theatre show. In in your mind. Yeah, in my mind. <laughs> in, in, in reality. In reality, it, to, to be fair, producing it wasn't hard. What made yeah. it hard was that I had no funding, mm-hmm. no finance. I had no one working for me. I could only afford freelancers occasionally. So I had to do absolutely everything. And there was no marketing budget. And I I lost nearly two stone in weight. And I was like, I am not doing that again. Without funding, without finance behind it and people actually valuing it, I'm not putting myself through that again. So that was the learning in that. I could do it, but to the expense of my health. Yeah. And... Did you see after that interest in funding? So um, I had great press attention. It was covered by uh, the BBC. It was covered by Refinery29. Mm-hmm. I had a, I will never forget this. This made all of that, the difficulty in doing that on your own, all worth it. And I had loads of people volunteer, which is incredible. Yeah. I had a black woman come up to me afterwards. I'd done a catwalk show and I turned the show into, I turned the catwalk into a bit of theatre ex- experiment so there was a love story and it was lots of different body shapes as well because that was the other thing that wound me up it was just size eight women right right we had lots of different body types on the catwalk as well we had people in the disabled community who came to the show and people who were in the LGBTQ community so we were I was trying to be as inclusive as possible without diluting the message and a black woman came up to me afterwards because I intentionally chose three black models I had five in total and I, I intentionally had a bias towards black women because yeah. we're so often not seen that's right and she came up to me afterwards she said thank you so much for doing this and then she started crying and then I started crying and I said can you tell me why you're crying what's going on for you and I knew it, it the words didn't need to be spoken but she said I never knew what it would feel like to be intentionally included before still makes me cry now so um Afterwards, I agonised. Yeah, I agonised. I'm still on what she what she, what she said. <laughs> she said, "I never knew what what it would feel like to be intentionally included." Included. Yeah. Wow. It still moves me. And you know what? Do you know why it moves me? It moves me because we have so adjusted ourselves to not being included which the inclusion should just be a right like it should just be it should just be a given it's we're not asking for the world it should just be a given but we have so adjusted ourselves to I'm not going to be included so I'm not expecting to be included yes 
that yeah. when it happens, it feels like everything. It feels like, and also my branding, I, I worked with um, the graphic designers and I said, I want a black woman on the, the front of the show is a black woman. And so a colleague of mine said, don't you think that might put people off? I said, no, it won't. Why do you think it would put people off? I find off? that language so interesting. <laughs> I find those words so, so interesting. Not just because they've said it, because so many people say it all the time in all kinds of ways. Yes. And I'm off social media at the minute, but I'm going to switch lanes really quick. I'm off social media at the minute, but I hopped on today because I wanted to check out your Instagram page because I wanted oh. to see about some of the things that you've been posting recently, just so I can see, you know, what you, what's been coming up for you. And you posted about the Fred Perry campaign yes. in the UK. So for those who don't know who Fred Perry is, or Fred Perry is a very British brand and it's a very... Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and there's a culture around it. Yes. So t- t- this is irrelevant <laughs> right now. Tell us what happened with Fred Perry. Oh boy. Which is so, a clothing, for those who don't know, it's a clothing brand. Um, yeah. Clothing brand. I think they do women as well, but I think they're renowned for, for they're renowned the men. For the men. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're not my style. So I'm not, you know, I'm not hugely into them, but uh, there was a, a recent campaign they've used with four models and they've used, I believe two dark skinned black men and then two men of color to front their campaign. Yeah. And it kicked off on Twitter, right for Jimsy, kicked off on Twitter with a white guy saying, uh, I take it you no longer want me as a customer, then bye. And then a thread of comments, this is diversity bullshit and we need to boycott the brand and they don't want us as white clients and they're taking all our women. It just completely escalated. So of all of the years and the millions of images of white men modeling, they are losing their shit over four men of color in the face of their brand. And that's exactly what that person said to you. Won't it put put people off? Yeah. The black person is front. Right. I mean... Everybody who knows the ethos of my brand, New Bride, and what it stands for in the industry, those types of people wouldn't be coming to my show. And yeah. also, I have no interest in serving people who want to willingly sit in their racism. That's yeah. that, you know, my show is going to wind you up. Right. Um, but that was the fear. Again, we've been used to that being the norm. And yeah. there were, again, magazine editors would say to uh, people that worked in the industry that if you want your shoot to be featured in our magazine it's more likely to be featured if you use a white model so this is the other part about this that really strikes me is these i guarantee these are the same people who will say i am not racist of course right yeah these are the same people who say my so-and-so is black my so-and-so is black yeah. i'm not racist But what they're saying when they say you're more guaranteed to get featured if it's a white model, what you're saying is a black woman is not attractive. Yes. If that isn't racism, what is it exactly? And really... I really want to I mean, understand. <laughs> I mean, it's so involved. I'm quite happy to name the uh, the publisher, actually, because um, yeah. they are a well-known publisher. It's Condé Nast, mm. and they had a, a wedding title at the time. But that title hasn't survived. They are no longer in existence. And it's because I am. it's because they did not move with the times. People were wanting more, and yeah. they were getting less, and they were 
acquired by the same P, the same digital brand, I think, that owns Tinder. I can't remember the name of them. Right. And they put out a statement and they said, we will be, so it had a US title, it had Brides US and Brides UK. And they put out a statement and said, we've now taken over and we'll be continuing to acquire Brides US and we'll mm. be doing what we can to make it more current. We will not be moving any further forward with Brides UK. That to me says it all. Wow. Wow. So one of the reasons why I wanted to particularly speak with you is you're based in the UK and the British <laughs> have a very particular flavor of racism. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm British, right? And I speak to this, but I think because I don't live in the UK, people think, oh, you don't know, mm. right? You don't really know. And so as a British woman who lives in Britain <laughs> and speaks to British people, why don't you tell us about this particular flavor of, of UK racism and how it shows up? Because it's different to how it shows up in the US and yeah. the conversation is held differently to the US. But what I always say is racism is racism. Yeah. Just because you talk about it differently, yeah. right, doesn't mean that it's not the same violence. Yes. It has the same impact and the outcome is the same. But what I would, would say is that the racism we experience here is under the surface. It's but in the fabric. Very the sneaky. Fabric of the DNA of this country. It sneaks up when you least expect it. And then when you try and speak on it, address it, you're gaslit, you're minimised, you shut down. There's some kind of retribution. Yeah. And you speaking up on racism ends up being more problematic, offensive, whatever, than the actual racism itself. Right. And I think a huge component is that because we gloss over our history. It's not taught in schools. We don't understand about where we've come from and what we did in order to be where we are, where we've got some of our wealth. We don't understand. And so there's lots of rhetorics like, oh, this happened a long time ago. Let's just move on. You know, some of the rhetorics I right. talked about earlier. And therefore nothing really changes and there there is huge fragility we are extremely extremely unsophisticated at talking about race in the UK yeah yeah I find that because in the United States the history of racism is on that land itself yes you know the the, the, yeah. the land theft the genociding and then the kidnapping enslaving and bringing bringing them there it happened on that land yeah. whereas Britain's history was outward they went it, out and did it everywhere right <laughs> right so there's this almost this like forgetting because it's not it's not present in the yeah. in the land but there are people living there like who look like you right yeah. who are the evidence of the yes. fact that this did happen yes yeah yeah, yeah. I mean there's uh, one start I love sharing because I just see people's jaws drop was that we were still playing off reparations from slavery in 2015 so British taxpayers were still wow. paying off reparations from slavery in 2015 so those reparations were made to people who enslaved people slave owning families were given these reparations wow. that did not come to us and we were paying that until 2015 Wow. So when you yeah. said reparations, I thought, I didn't know black people in the UK got reparations. No, That's not what you're didn't. talking about. No, no, no. You're talking nope. about for the fact that slavery ended, slave owning families were paid a reparations to make up for the fact that they could no longer own slaves. Yeah. To make up for the fact that they were no longer getting access to free labor. 
and that debt was so large the debt was so large that we as British taxpayers only just finished paying it in 2015. Wow that's I mean my jaw (laughs) is dropped open. My Um, favorite. Yeah it's wow and the other thing about British culture which is it's just very inherently British is we don't um it's rude to like make a fuss of anything. Yes. So if you're angry, at, you know, sometimes, you know, I live in, I live in uh, Qatar and we have people of all cultures here. Yeah. And I remember when I would work in, in a job, job, a corporate job, we have people of all cultures there. And oftentimes it was white British men who were in those managerial positions. Right. And everyone else was all other kinds of cultures. And I could tell when they were not okay from the way that they spoke and their tone, but it doesn't translate the same to other cultures. Mm. So I would have, you kind of have to like, there's what British people say, and then there's what they mean. Mm. Right. Yes, <laughs> yes. Two different. With, we're not good at being honest. And I don't mean that people are going out of their way to lie, no, but they're no. certainly not telling the truth. They're no. certainly not speaking about how they really, really feel. feel. Right, right. So it gets coded in other other ways and yes. communicating, which I'm not saying is, is inherently wrong. I'm just noting it as just a British quirk. But yeah. when we're talking about racism, which you need to have direct conversations about yes. what's actually happening, this is where this way of communicating becomes an even bigger source of harm. Yes. That's where the gaslighting happens. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Completely. And you were part of, you know, this journey that you've been on in working in the wedding industry is you got to be a part of Harry and Meghan's wedding. Oh, yes. Yes. I have a lot lot to thank that couple for. Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) You were interviewed a lot as part of that that wedding. What was that like? Do you know what, Leila? This... I remember a colleague, and I'm going to name her. She's actually a former client as well. Her name is Denise. And she she said to me, before Harry and Meghan were engaged, she said, they're going to get engaged. You have your blog post ready. Oh, um, she knew. Like, oh, really? Because I wasn't a royal. I didn't, I don't follow celebrities. It's just not yeah. me. And I'm like, oh, all right. So it was in my mind. Yeah. And then when they got engaged, I wrote a blog post that night and I think I published it the morning after and it was all about what it might mean to have a woman of colour in the British monarchy. No other platform in the wedding industry was talking about that. They were all talking about what dress you might wear, all of the frivolous stuff. And right. I was talking about yeah. the historical significance of yeah. having a woman. My, I, remember, I remember my mom was like, wow, the queen is going <laughs> to let a person of colour be in her royal family, you yeah. know? Like, my mom was like, times are changing, you know, <laughs> because it is so unprecedented. Yeah, it made the most sense to me. And it was that blog post I did because I think they got engaged in November. Yeah. And that blog post I did got picked up by Sky News in, in the following January. Mm. And they were just, um, it's, not, it's not uncommon that they'll reach out to wedding or me as a media platform to ask me opinions or to share stuff. Or, and they uh, said, can we have a chat? And I remember it was a, I was having a really bad day. Finances were hell. And I was thinking about jacking it all in, if I'm honest. I was thinking about <laughs> turning all of this new bride stuff. I'd had enough. And I was just, my car needed fixing. I was feeling sorry for myself. And I got this email through. 
and I was in a car garage and I said I'm just outside let me call you back when I'm back in the office and then we spoke on the phone for over an hour and they said we've never spoken to someone more passionate I've learned more from you in an hour than I've learned in my lifetime and really lovely to be part of the documentary so that was the start and then of course I did that then they wanted me on air every time to speak on it and then BBC News saw it and then Germany saw it New Zealand, Australia. It was amazing, overwhelming. And also I had to just trust that I knew that I deserved to be there and that I knew my stuff because it just, at one point I had 15 interviews in one week and I was, yeah, if I, if I really sat into the magnitude of that and the audience I'd be speaking in, speaking to, I would have got overwhelmed. So, yeah. Nova, how was, so, you know, seeing how their wedding and marriage has been Mm -hmm. picked apart in some of the British press as somebody who was being put forward as this is a voice on on these issues. What are some of the things that you've had to come up against? Because I cannot imagine being in, and this is the author of Me and White Supremacy, right? But I cannot imagine putting myself in that level of unsafety. Yeah. So when Sky first asked me to do this short documentary on race, I remember, I didn't say yes straight away. I remember talking it through my husband. I said, if I do this, my profile is going to be raised and I'm going to receive racism and I don't know if I'm strong enough. Yeah. I I had to have the same conversation with my husband. Like, this will be coming. Yeah. Yes. Because we can't have one without the other. No. And so he's he's sort of talked me through it and he's like, what would you say to someone asking you advice? And it's the same thing. It's like, what do I need to protect myself, to look after myself, to prepare myself, um, to make it as safe as possible? Because he's like, if you're doing work that's going to evoke a lot of emotion in people, it's just not possible to have one without the other. You're also a dark-skinned black woman. And that, I mean, that's an important that's important too to note. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the, the, how you would be treated if you were a white woman, if you were a lighter skinned woman of color, if you were a lighter skinned black woman versus you being a dark skinned black woman, anti-blackness, especially against dark skinned black women. It's rife. Is, it's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, there's some cruel people. I mean, I don't, I just, I just had to put my bound, my barriers up, right? Self-care ramped up. Who am I? Where's my safety? What do I need to do to filter this stuff out? So I had somebody I could, um, at the time, afford to hire somebody who was filtering messages. So I didn't yeah. see them. And I just... We don't like, read the comments. I would yeah, I was like, <laughs> never, don't read the comments. And at some point, I remember some people coming back to me saying, oh, no, but the comments are bad. I was like, I don't need to, I don't need to hear that. Don't need to ever see them. Yeah. Don't tell me, I don't need to hear it. So I never look at comments on things like that. Um, yeah. If I've been on a radio show, I won't go on Twitter for at least a week or a few days afterwards, just when it's all calmed down again. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... Yeah. I guess what made me decide was like, right, there's, I'm feeling called to serve something that's bigger than me and that's bigger than this. I do what I can to protect myself, but that cause is bigger. Yeah. And that's for me, I mean, this idea of being a good ancestor was what became my something bigger. Yeah. 
because when I began the work as well, it was just like, wow, you know, this is a lot. And I actually didn't realize that people could be so violent and could say the kinds of things that they say. Um, I mean, you experienced, I mean, I remember when you did your Me and My White Supremacy, when it was a challenge on Instagram, it was a friend of mine who knew I was doing anti-racism, well, at least the beginning stages of it. She's like, oh my God, have you heard of Layla? She's doing this challenge. Oh no, I knew about you before because you'd written the spiritual white women Mm. thing. That's where I first heard of you. And so I was following you and then I saw this challenge and I was reading the comments. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I was really worried about you. Yeah. And that's the thing. We see each other, right? And we're like, yeah. oh, you're okay. <laughs> yeah. I, was like, I don't know how she's even, oh my God, because yeah. I'm terrified. It's that, same, it's that same thing. Like you said, like there has to be something bigger because not by choice would we do this work. There Never. are so many other things we could be doing that are safer that would, you know, we would be able to sleep more peacefully at night, you know, uh, wouldn't break our heart every single day. You know what I mean? Um, Wouldn't have to put us in positions where we have to be gaslit and and all kinds and explaining ourselves in all kinds of ways and having people project who they think we are or what we think are, you know, I've, I'm sure you've heard this, um, but I've definitely heard people say, oh, I just thought you hated all white people. And it's like, what did you read in what I said where that was? Yeah, I've had your your racist against white people. I've been called called middle-aged before. Not sure how I feel about that. (laughs) Bitter, bitter black woman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Disgusting, I've been called, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, And it's like, in the beginning, for me, that was really hard because I was still in the I mean, we're always in a state of becoming, as Michelle Obama would say. Yeah. But I was very much gaining my sense of self from other people's ideas of me. 100% agree. Right? And so up until doing anti-racism work, everything I'd heard was wonderful about me. Mm. So I was like, I'm wonderful. I'm fine. You know, everything is great. And now I'm being called a racist bitch. And now I'm being told that I'm X, Y, Z, and I'm bitter and these things. And it's really starts to mess with who you think you are. And you have to actually stop and think, who am I? Yes. How do I define myself? Because I can't move forward in this work. Yes. Until I know who I am. Yes. Yeah. Oh gosh, that really resonates. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a video that you did recently where you talked about boundaries and I thought this was on your Facebook page and it was after, I think it was after the news of Ahmaud Aubrey coming out and you did a video on your page. I think that's what it was. Yes. You talked about boundaries and I thought this is somebody who's had to really, like myself, learn that, yes, I will show up for this conversation, but I will show it up in in my way, not in the way that you expect me to or desire me to. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I remember this, this resonated in your, on your book tour when you were being interviewed by Jude Kelly, when you were talking about, I come from a therapeutic background anyway. So I've always been into therapy. I've had therapy, clinical supervision, all of that yeah. stuff. But what I had noticed was that when I started doing anti-racism work, I wasn't in therapy. Mm. And so I got to a point where this was just eating away at me and I would be 
the work I was doing, the energy behind it was convincing people, getting really mad and fed up that why can't they see this? Why won't they wake up? Mm -hmm. It's making me ill, Mm -hmm. making me ill. So um, I do a lot of I do a lot of inner work anyway, and then I think the I'd started on this journey since last year of just really going in, and also the more I was teaching anti-racism work, the more I was like, oh my, I've got some internalized racism. Yeah. It springs up and with. punches you in the I face. Like, oh, <laughs> oh, a kinder surprise. Yeah. And I, <laughs> so it's like I I and, and also there was such shame around it sort of going back into therapy, going on this healing retreat, working with with my therapist now has supported me in defining how to do this work safely and from a place of power and not my pain because it was coming from my pain. That's right. That's right. It was coming from that that wound of all of the remembrance, right, of everything. And it's a very dangerous place to put ourselves in. Yes because it yeah. eats us up from the inside out and then it doesn't serve the work doesn't serve the work and you know what the I mean it was a, a process mm. but um I have or had I should say tumors in my womb mm. and they were causing huge huge problems with periods very very painful mm. very heavy bleeding to the point where if I was in fact my TEDx talk I was on my period I was working with a designer and said, I'm going to need to wear black because I, it, there was just flooding. You'd get up, you'd be leaky. It was just horrendous, mm. horrendous, horrendous symptoms. And I put off surgery for ages because the first surgeon that I saw suggested a hysterectomy and all of these things that they're not looking into what is causing such common issues within black women. So this right. is not uncommon. And they were called fibroids, these tumours. Yeah. And so I decided to have the surgery which was last year. So I'd already started that, you know, from the year before I'd started with nutrition, I was starting to work on the inside out. And the scan showed that I had about 12 or 14. Wow. When it came to having the surgery and the surgeon coming to see me afterwards, he said, Nova, we've removed 37 tumours. Wow. Wow, Nova. My husband visibly gasped and he said, that's almost one for every year. And it was at that point, I was like, no more am I internalizing this stuff. I am not working in unhealthy ways. I will put my boundaries up. And if that means some relationships end or Mm. people don't like me for it, I'm okay with that. I will not allow this stuff to go into my body, to show up in my body as trauma in that way again, because that's what it was. That is so powerful. I, I mean, I've heard you talk about how racism causes trauma that we that we're living with with that trauma and seeing how visibly it, you know, part of it was these. It's coming out in these fibroids yeah. in these tumors, right? And that's the thing that many people who have white privilege do not understand no. about how it's impacting. Just because you're not seeing the N-word being used or you're not seeing somebody visibly cut, right, or visibly beat up from a racist attack doesn't mean that those microaggressions, as you talk about in your TEDx talk, which I really Mm. encourage people to go and watch, isn't having that kind of deep psychic, physical, mental effect. 
Yeah. And right. that's, you know, by all means, for the people who are more curious, go and read up about how, go and read up about transgenerational trauma and how things are passed on from generation to generation, especially yeah. in the womb area in women. There was, I guess I would describe her as a spiritual healer called Sibon Fusome. Yeah. And she died early mm. and she had this tumor in the same space in the womb. And I'm yeah. like, ah. But the research that I was talking about in my TEDx talk around trauma was talking about more mental mental health. Yeah. And there was a study done by neuroscience, neuroscientists, and it showed people exposed to regular, the study was with black people, I need to preface that, black people who were exposed to regular racial stress. They were looking at the brain pattern and it was showing the same brain pattern in black people as soldiers who had served in war, as war wow. veterans, and it was showing up as PTSD. So that's just one study. And define for the people who are still not getting it, the racial stress. What does that racial stress look like? It's everyday discrimination. It's everyday othering. It's everyday messages that somehow you don't belong. Where are you from? Where are you really from? Right. Oh, it wasn't racism. Oh, stop playing the race card. Yeah. Uh, when will black people get over slavery? It's yeah. Uh, pay inequity it's disproportionate healthcare outcomes it's black women being five times more likely to die in childbirth in the UK and nobody really interrogating why right the disproportionate treatment or the disproportionate outcomes that we're seeing from COVID-19 that impact the black that's the stuff right and it's not because we're dis- diseased, inferior human beings well, well I was going to say I think white well I know white supremacy's narrative around that is there is something inferior in black bodies that would cause that to happen yes right and this idea that fundamentally black people and other people of um, other races who are not white are different to white yes. people white people are the norm of what it means to be a whole human being yeah and everyone else is a another kind of setting that is inferior in some way yes. yeah. and that's a really insidious way to deflect from the harm that whiteness does yes yeah Yeah. it's a racist and it's a negative stereotype of course just like across all races there's going to be people of different social economic backgrounds and that's going to impact your access to healthcare. of course it will for anybody but what the the spin on cb19 was that it's because we've got a vitamin d deficiency if that were the case (laughs) <laughs> and we and we all live in cramped houses. Well, no, you know, because there were many who have part who passed from it, who are consultants who earn a lot of money, who are not living in cramped multi-generational houses. Right. Same rhetoric would go with black maternal health. Serena Williams is multilingual, yeah, highly affluent. Yeah. And she nearly passed away in childbirth because right. she wasn't listened to when she said she was in pain or when right. something wasn't wrong. Right, right. Yeah. And if we if we strip back to studies that I think it was a 2016 study that revealed white medical students still believe that black people can withstand more pain. Yes. Of course that's going to impact how you treat people on a ward. Of course. Of course, of course. And, and it's, you know, when I'm having conversations on, online about racism, I think, and also when I do like events. So I recently did Good Ancestor Podcast Live, where we had a live audience, right, virtually. Or when I've done um, like masterclasses and there's a Q&A portion, 
a comment that I'll get over and over again is I'm a British woman or I'm a British person or I live in the UK and it's different here. It's not that here. So how do you suggest, like, what are the things I need to be looking at here? Because it's different to what you're saying about the rest of the world. Mm. And these things, like, I just can't like underscore this enough. (laughs) (laughs) I just can't because it's this exceptionalism that happens right? Where it's like, that is the rest of the world, specifically the U S it's not, it's not us. It's not not that bad. Right. And then it, then it turns into this weird competition about, well, who's Who's more racist. I had that on LinkedIn last week. Someone asked me, um, well, if the comment was around Harry and Meghan again, and they're like, well, if Britain's so bad, then why do you think she's gone to America, which is even worse? I'm like, based on whose standards? Like, right. What makes you think racism in, in America is worse? Because I'll tell you something, I have these conversations with my husband, who is less patient than me. And he says to me, I would rather deal with an overt racist. That's right. Any day. Any day. Dealing with this insidious stuff. Any day. Because then yeah. I can just be like, bye. <laughs> with it you can manage it right 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 so there has been in the UK you know post-Brexit and the current PM and all of the changes that are happening there a definite rise in the incidence of um, racism and, and, and acts of racism that's scary I have I don't live in the UK but my family do my brothers my nephew and my niece and when I think about it I'm like we're in 2020 and that's coming back up again. It's always there, like we're saying, but it's coming up in this way that people feel more emboldened yes. to, to do these things. How are you navigating that? Again, it's just, I'm fiercely looking after my well-being. Yeah. I'm fiercely making sure that I practice joy and that there is laughter in my life and that there is light, lightness because I can't do this work without that duality. I, I, yeah. I, like, I need that boundaries having to make decisions about relationships I want to invest in. And, can we talk those, about can we talk we about can. that? Can we talk about that? <laughs> we can. Um, let's talk about that because when you are a black woman who talks about anti-racism in very direct ways, you know, that causes the people in our life to not know what to do. And especially when it's relationships with people who are white or who have white yes. privilege. There's often an assumption that, yeah, but I don't have to, you know that, you know that I'm not racist. Yeah. I've been your friend all of this time. You know that I'm not racist. I definitely had to navigate that. And, um, I talk about one of the like main friendships in my book that I, this is person who's no, no longer in my life, right? My best friend who was a white woman, no longer in my life because, you know, when I started talking about racism, she disappeared herself from my life. Wasn't showing up for the work. Wasn't showing up period actually full stop in any way. And it's very painful. I remember feeling, I remember feeling very confused, just very confused because I know you, you are a good person. I know that you've walked me through some really hard things. You've been there for me when this happened, when that happened, why are you not here now? How's that been showing up for you? Exactly the same. It could be the same story, Layla. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's one friendship. I mean, I'm working through it in therapy at the moment because it feels like grief. I'm literally grieving It is our relationship because I have come to a place where I have to accept that our relationship 
may not survive this and I have to be okay with that. And that's painful. She was a bridesmaid at my wedding. Mm. She's been in my life for decades. Um, and that means, so that means that she, because you started new brides around, new bride around that yeah. same time. So she's, this isn't new to her, this conversation. No. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's it's definitely anti. It's gone up a level because before I would sort of fluff around. I would talk about. To be fair, my work was more holistic when I first started doing consultancy, and it was diversity consultancy that I did, right. which obviously includes other it includes other identities, other right. identities. And I noticed that the one everybody got uncomfortable with and really wanted to gloss over was race. And I was like, yeah. nope, that's the one we're leaning into. So. Around the wedding time, it was more diversity mm. um, than anti-racism. Of course, I would talk about race, but it was more diversity. I also think that we've changed how we talk about race now. Like if I think about just two, three years ago, when I think the conversation was more diversity than, yes. than race. Yeah. yeah. I remember I would struggle to say white people. So even right. I inhabited that. I would say Caucasian or people who are not black or everything else but white (laughs) so I look back and I'm like oh my goodness so yes I'm and also I'm much more I am I am living I am I am who I am now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's still a journey I'm still growing but I was assimilating back then and switching it up and wanting to make them comfortable that's right whereas now I'm holding a firmer boundary and so Mm. Some won't like it and it's painful. And yeah, I've had being ignored, being gaslit. I told her this particular friend I messaged maybe three weeks ago. It was around the time of Ahmad's horrendous murder. And I was just sharing that I was really hurting and um, that it would be really lovely to have heard from you. To this day, I've not had a response. And that that was the closure I needed. I was like, yeah. There's nothing more I can do. And we've had conversations. We've gone back and forth before right. anti-racism and um, and how I, you know, I, I need to be able to be myself in this relationship. And the behaviour hasn't changed. The outcome hasn't changed. So, yeah. And, and, and that's the, because we're talking to on our platforms, right, hundreds, thousands of people every single day, but we're human beings. Yeah. We're human beings who have individual relationships with individual people. And I can say everything to all the people, but that you're my person. You're yeah. supposed to be my person. And yeah. this is, you know, that's the real, when you, that's when you start seeing the real cost of white supremacy. Oh gosh. And it was so painful because again, I was like, she was a bridesmaid at, um, it was this, She's a bridesmaid at my wedding. She's a gorgeous human being. She was there for me with surgery and all these times she was there for me, but there was a whole lot of times when she wasn't. There was right. a whole lot of times when she caused me harm. There was, mm. you know, the memories of her husband having a, a, a joke about South Asian people and calling them the P word and then wow. her laughing. Wow. And there were times when she was having an Islamophobic Islamophobic rants and I had to call her in on that and then mm. wow she can present in this way in front of me what's she saying behind my back oh. and then the mind just goes wild right 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 <laughs> it's filling in the gaps and it's not yeah. healthy so as you're on this journey of healing that and coming into yeah what wherever you are on that journey is it working working this out in therapy and, and by yourself what are some of the uh, I guess 
lessons you're learning or decisions you're making or yeah, just how, how are you not just reacting to what's happening? Yeah. Right. Because that's just coming again from our pain. Yeah. But actually that wiser part of yourself, that, that part that's really true. What is that part saying? It's responding and it's recognizing that, you know, we are all products of our own environment. And to me, the essence of anti-racism work is about collective healing. Mm. And we all have a lot of shame that is just floating around and making us behave in certain ways. And until we have the courage to uncover what that is and why it's showing up, we'll continue causing harm to one another um, un- unintentionally or otherwise. So I really do feel that I'm able, and it's interesting because I'm able to hold compassion for other people more easily yeah. than I can myself. Yeah. yeah. But to me, that's the component. It's compassion for myself mm. and others. Yeah. And yeah. also accepting that not everyone's going to get this. Yeah. And that's, that, you know, and having to find, uh, having to be at peace with that, not everyone will get it. If it was that easy then you know things would have changed during the civil rights movement yeah I know that there are black and brown people listening to this conversation right now and maybe in exactly the same place that we're talking about right now or just having come through the other side what do we want them to know about how to because it's like you said there's a lot of grief it's very it's very triggering and traumatizing but we don't want to live from that place right so much of the conversation of anti-racism and racism is we start to define ourselves from this place of pain and this Mm. place of exactly what white supremacy says we are, which is joyless, you know, which is not free, which is, you know, never being seen until whiteness validates us. Right. And so that's not what we want. Right. This world, this world that we want to build is, is a world in which all of us, people of all races have the dignity to live in their full humanity. So we have have to live that now. Yes. Right. And not later. What do you want to say to to those folks? So I hosted a five day program at the end of April, just for, just for black and brown women. And it was all about learning to be allies for ourselves. So learning to address microaggressions when they happen in the moment, looking at how, you know, figuring out what our triggers are around anxiety, building resilience, all of this stuff. So bringing some of my mental health backgrounds into supporting them. And one of the things I said, and it was a lesson that I kept reinforcing and you could just see the penny drops. I truly believe that one of the biggest way we can honor our ancestors is to allow ourselves to heal. If we sit in our pain and our grief and we function from our pain and our grief, we're not allowing ourselves to heal. We're denying our lights to shine. We're denying our freedom. And that's what they would have wanted. They would have wanted us to be free. So I'm not saying don't advocate and don't, you know, don't speak and up don't feel And don't feel angry or don't no, feel upset. That's, right. That's not what we're saying. That's not what I'm saying. Be angry. <laughs> yeah. But don't let that anger turn itself inwards. Express the anger. Yeah. Like I do lots of therapeutic shaking and dancing and expressing, ah, you know, yeah. doing vocal releases. To get it out of my body yeah. and then I move on with my day. So I can be in deep grief and move to joy more quickly than I used to be able to. Yeah. And that helps me. Um, there are some days that are really heavy and I have to just surrender. But other days, 
living in our joy, allowing ourselves to heal is the way we honor our ancestors. I, I love that so much. And I, I really want to pick on something that you just said there, which um, I realized was a lesson for me, which is that I actually don't need to express my anger to white people. Mm, nice. Right? Yeah. So I can go work out my anger because yeah. working out my anger is me then doing what I like, honoring what I feel. Yes. Letting it work through me and moving on. But when I'm, I found that when I was expressing my anger to white people, what was underneath that was I, I need to convince you that you've hurt me so that you'll see me. So then I'll feel more whole. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And we don't need that. We don't no. need that to feel whole. No. So my, the way that when something happens and some, someone has done something that has violated a boundary because that's what happened. That's why we get angry, right? A, a, yeah. a boundary has been violated in some way. I just reinforce the boundary. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then I go do me, right? I don't need to get into that. <laughs> I don't need to get in an, into an altercation with you. It's kind of, I said what I said and yes. I keep it moving. I'll go work out my anger somewhere else. But yes. I found that in those early days of doing anti-racism work, I kept returning to those people, waiting for them to get it. Yes. Yeah. And so yeah. it was always a waiting and it's like watching a TV series that has a cliffhanger at the end and you never mm. get the resolution. Yeah. Right? You're always <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, there's, um, there's a beautiful element of this retreat that I went on to, which was all about writing a letter to people or a person or a situation that represents harm that has caused yeah, you trauma yeah, yeah. and seeking resolution on that. And there's so much, there's a book by Eve Ensler called The Apology as well, but it's all about the power in just writing that letter. Like you don't need to get an apology from somebody to heal. You don't need it, but that no, process I, really I helps. Right. Cause I don't need them to see my, I don't need them to affirm my humanity. I, no. I, I affirm my humanity. Now, I'm not Ooh. talking about when something needs to uh, be addressed. Sometimes something needs to be addressed, right? Yes. And it needs to be something that needs to be fixed or someone needs to take accountability, yes. so on and so forth. That's one thing. I'm talking yes. about, I need to show you how angry I am so yes. that you can see, so that you can affirm that I'm a human no. being. No, right. <laughs> when I let that you. go, it's, I got so free after that. Because <laughs> it's that expression, allowing ourselves to not bite our tongue and suppress. It's for us because yes. we've been taught for so many years to suppress. Yeah, to be yeah. subservient to bite our tongue. Yeah, so it's for us. That expression yeah. is yeah. for us. But I find my cat, <laughs> myself catching myself sometimes because you know sometimes you're just like I'm just. Oh. Yeah. Should I be petty right now? Like yeah. the petty wants to come out, and sometimes you know you do it, and then you. But other, most of the time, I'm like, it's not even worth it. Like my, yeah. this is what you're saying. I made the decision that my peace and my joy come first. Yeah. So if this is going to take me outside of that. It may feel good in the moment to have that yeah. hat, that clap back, yeah. or that whatever that thing is. But now it's still in me because yeah. you didn't react the way I wanted you to react or I didn't get the thing at the end of it. And that's a way that we can be participating in white supremacist dynamics without even realizing it. Yeah. yeah. And also, give, again, giving away your power. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 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 Oh, my gosh. I've loved <gasps> the conversation so, so much. 
Okay, final question before our final question, because you, you talked about giving away our power. As you've been, you know, on this journey over these last few years, and really, I, I think, am I correct in saying your voice every day, you feel it getting freer and more true? Yeah, it's definitely freer. Uh, it's much more liberating and yeah. it's my truth. So I'm owning my vulnerability. It's my truth. And I'm like, no one can take that away from me. There's from no debate. You my truth (laughs) yes yeah yes so what are the I guess because the power is there you don't have to go out and get it it's there but there are things that get in the way of it yeah what are some of the things that for you got in the way that you have freed yourself from or are in the practice of freeing yourself from that make it easier for you to come from that place yeah I got in my way um Mm. the Nova that doesn't feel good enough the Nova that was afraid of her power or stepping into or starting to step into it, the Nova that didn't really know who she was or where she belonged. So for me, being a, people often say, even, even for people who are white or hold white privilege and they want to be allies, they're like, how can I be a better ally? Do your inner work. How can you, you know, be your fullest self as a, a, as a black woman or a woman of colour? Do your inner work, allow yourself to heal. And when you discover things, just hold them with compassion like we're doing the best we can and we've we've had to behave in a way in order to survive we've been taught to assimilate especially us who are coming from um who are British and have have had assimilation role model to us like we, yeah. we did what we we did what we thought was right and that's okay but now we know now we, it sounds cliche, but wonderful Maya Angela. Now we know better, we can do better. So for me, it's just having compassion because sometimes I go back into that. I'm not good enough. I'm an imposter. Yeah. Um, and I just hold. Oof, that's the, that's the yeah. big monster, right? <laughs> the big one. It's like, oh, here we go again. And, then... and I would say that, you know, for, <laughs> you know, for so many of us, especially those of us who are black and brown, that is a big one. And yeah. What I have seen is, like I said, I get to interview amazing people on this podcast, each of them doing work that is so unique. And they're also, nearly all of them are pioneers in doing what they're doing. Not to say that there haven't been other people that have come before them that have laid the groundwork to enable them to be able to to do that work. But to do, so I'm using you as an example, because we're talking to you, you know, being in the wedding, in the British wedding industry, having the conversations that you're having, no one was doing that before, not in the way that you're doing it, not at the level that you're doing it at. And imposter syndrome can pop up because you're doing something that's new and you are conditioned into white supremacy, just like all of us are. Yes. Yeah. And imposter syndrome can come up. And I'm always so struck by the fact that we can have done this and have done that, right? All of these achievements that we've racked up and people are going, oh my God. And we don't take a moment to stop and think, wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, and and I say that not to say you have to have those achievements to have that moment to celebrate yourself, but making it through the day. Yeah is an achievement. Is an achievement when you've got racial microaggressions every single day. Yeah. Like I'm noticing, for example, the level of peace I'm feeling being offline at the moment. Yeah. Gosh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's hard. I took four days offline and came back on today to more drama and bullshit. So yeah, it's, um, 
Yeah, there is a lot just, of power. Just getting through the day. And I think yeah. just really noting and celebrating and giving gratitude to the fact that there's that uh, poem, I think it's by, is it Lucille Clifton or Sonia Sanchez? I cannot remember. But at the end, it's like, won't you, I think it's, I think it's Lucille Clifton. And she says, won't you celebrate with me that I live this life and every day something has tried to destroy me and I'm still here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Butchered her words, but that's that's what she, that's, you know, that's the poem. Right, right. And that living from that sense of pleasure and that joy is in of itself, like, yeah, amazing. Because we can often feel guilty for living from a place of joy when our brothers and sisters are struggling or dying or whatever it might be it's like so there's this conflict but we can be both the two can coexist and I think it's vital yeah 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 yeah. okay no oh boy (laughs) I adore you I love you oh like I so I was really interested in how you answered the opening question about you know the ancestors that have influenced you in your journey and you're still very much in that journey of getting to those answers for yourself. But as somebody who I see as a living ancestor right now, what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? Oh, to me, it's it's going back to what I just said. Being a good ancestor is living in your truth, not being afraid of your power, not being afraid to go back to that inner wisdom. And it is all of that stuff. It is allowing ourselves to heal because that is the best way that we fight this system by healing and living in our joy. And yeah, I, I can't express it enough. It, it's nourishing. It's, I wish I'd have got here earlier, <laughs> but you know, without breaking We're myself here up, I'm here at the time that I was ready to, because it's, you know, it can be quite painful, but I'm here at the time that I've been ready to do this. And I think yeah. that the healing is collective healing is where change happens. Yeah. Cause if yeah. we are operating from a place where we're living in our joy and we're living from a place where we're speaking truth, that has a ripple effect on how you show up in the world, the relationships you have, the, how you inspire others, how you motivate others. And I think that's being a good ancestor because that then leads the legacy. That's it. That's it. I just want to thank you and honor you for the healing work that you continue to do within yourself first and the space that you hold for the rest of us too. Um, As a black woman, it means so much to me seeing you shine and seeing you show up in your work the way that you do. And I feel so we're all over the world Mm. doing this work, but there is this collective sisterhood of amazing black women who are doing this work and I feel very honored to be a part of that sisterhood. Oh, Leila, thank you so much. I absolutely adore you and can't thank you enough for what you have endured and what you are doing now because, yeah, we're all part of that story. Yeah, yes, we are. Yes, we are. Thank you. (laughs) Pleasure. This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash Good Ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a Good Ancestor.